Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Abby Carcio. And I'm your other host, Sydney Cummings. And from wherever you're listening, welcome to Megged, a women's soccer podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the women's professional sport. These are our unsolicited football opinions. You didn't ask for them, but we're going to give them. And who knows? Maybe you'll agree. Maybe you'll disagree. But that's the beauty of the game and what's kept us friends for so long. This episode, we'll be discussing injuries in the game. Move your feet. This is Megged. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Megged. Abs, how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. This past weekend, we uh, we could have sealed the deal on our championship title uh, if we got a win, but we ended up tying. So it's going to take us one more game to get the job done. But, um, you know, we're edging closer to that that title and it's exciting. So how are you doing, Sid? Yeah, pretty good. I had off. We had a bye because we won um, leading up to our grand final. So spent the weekend just relaxing. It's my last weekend in Melbourne because our final game is in Sydney. So it was nice, pretty chill, just hung out with friends, um, helped some of my friends move, and it was just really nice spending time having the weekend off. It's crazy how fast the end of the season goes, like everything just kind of happens rapidly. But in football news, we have some Champions League action. And one thing that I noticed this week in the semifinals was the amount of fans that turned out. It was so great. At the Emirates, 45, upwards of 45,000 coming out to support the women's team and that's becoming more regular. And it's so, so nice to see that we're finally at that sustainable level where it's happening week in week out. So that's been amazing. But one thing we have to talk about is a major injury and a major loss to the women's game. Leah Williamson suffered an ACL injury in one of the league matches against Manchester United. And she will obviously be with missing the world cup. And it's going to be a huge loss for, for England and for the women's game in general. Yeah, so we're actually going to talk a lot about injuries this episode. And ironically enough, we'd already decided to talk about injuries this week before this happened. So it's terrible timing, obviously, for Leah. But it just helps us in, in what we're going to be discussing this episode about why this is happening in such high rates. And it's happening to big-time players as well. Um, so we're just going to dive a little bit into that. Because unfortunately, what's happening in the football world right now are injuries. So like Abby mentioned, Leah Williamson suffered an ACL injury, and obviously she's not the first one for this season, but this one was definitely, at least for me, and Ab's probably you too, it was definitely really heartbreaking just knowing a little bit about like the journey that Leah's been on and how pivotal she is for England right now. And England's been a top pick contender for the World Cup, so having their skipper and their starting center back go down, I'm sure is devastating. Um, but she's one of many that we've seen so far in this not only calendar year, but this season in general. So we mentioned it in the last podcast when we were talking about FIFA rankings, but people like Mitama, Janine Becky, like they are out as well. Absolutely. I think England's chances are reduced 25%, losing the duo of Leah Williamson and Mead, both to ACL injuries. And 
yeah, I want to mention that I think one of the important reasons to talk about ACLs is because you're missing players from huge tournaments and therefore you're degrading the level of play of our game. At the end of the day, football, women's football is entertainment and that's what it relies on. And so if you're not having the best players playing on the biggest stage, you're losing that entertainment factor. And yeah, ultimately I think that can hurt women's soccer's chances of being more prolific in the next years to come. Yeah, and it might sound like we're the way that we're speaking right now seems kind of pointed, like we're blaming somebody. And obviously it's not the people that are getting injured. Those are freak things that happens. But we have talked a lot about this and we feel like there's a lot of responsibility on the powers that be, you know, the the clubs, the people, researchers, just all of these people, because we feel like Obviously, it's it's a fact that women tear their ACLs at a much higher rate than men. But what Abby and I have an issue with is that not much is being done about it. Like, it's kind of just being accepted. We saw that Women's Game posted on Instagram that there have been 57 ACL injuries in this season. And that is astronomical. We're not 100% sure on the accuracy of that number, but let's just say it's 50. Like, that is a lot. And the fact that people have kind of just accepted it and they're like, oh, we wish Leah Williamson well, like that's not normal. So we want to dive a little bit into, you know, what the research has been saying, our opinion on it. And Abby and I aren't the most educated on it because we've never gone through it, knock on wood. Um, But later on in the episode, we brought in somebody who has. So she's going to offer her perspective as well. But Abs, give me your initial thoughts. Like this has kind of just become accepted language. Like, oh, this player tore their ACL. They're now out for the season. Like, what are your thoughts on that? It's so frustrating. It's frustrating because there are a lot of articles out there that just have completely different reasonings behind the frequency. They have vastly different suggestions for prevention. And yeah, it just seems like no one is on the same page with ACL injuries. And that's very frustrating. I just don't understand why a federation can't put down some sort of standardized research program that can actually give us real answers that aren't varying every single article that's put out. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that we've seen has been stuff related to the anatomy, like how female bodies are structured. Um, So things like, you know, women get their periods and you're more susceptible to an injury on periods, which we've discussed um, that women's hips are wider. And so the way that we run and the way our lower bodies are structured is very different to a man, which like, yes, that is true. But I think where a lot of people's frustration lies is that why does it need to be because female bodies are different than male bodies? That's the reason why. I feel like our issue is generated towards the fact that people are just accepting that women and male bodies are different. Like, duh, we've known that. That's not a secret. So what is going to be done to help the fact that women tear their ACLs more? Because just accepting it doesn't seem like the proper answer. And it is important to note, like, there are other injuries other than an ACL that are taking people out of the tournament. Like, Mallory Swanson obviously ruptured her patella. There's been some some players who have ruptured their Achilles. Like, those are also season-ending, can be season-ending. But, Abby, like you said, that can take away from a team's chances or the quality of their football or whatever the case may be. So it's not just ACL injuries that we're talking about, but those are the ones that seem to become accepted and that are happening a lot more frequently than the things like a ruptured patella and a ruptured Achilles, which are obviously terrible, but 
again, not happening at the same rate that we're seeing ACLs and not being accepted at the same rate. I think a trap that I fall into is like this black and white thinking. Obviously, I'm not a scientist. Obviously, I haven't had the firsthand experience, knock on wood. And so I just have this assumption that, okay, there's going to be some golden egg answer of like, this is why it's happening more frequently. And I was talking to one of our past trainers said, Rachel, and she was kind of saying abs, like don't fall into that trap of, of thinking. So linearly, like these injuries happen for a multitude of reasons. And I have accepted that in a sense, but I'm still like questioning, okay, if there's a multitude of reasons, like, can we narrow down a certain combination of those, those factors and then work to mitigate those? That's kind of where I'm at. Like, I don't know the answers and that's frustrating in itself. And so I think the starting point should be like in-depth research. I completely agree. I obviously don't have the answers either, but I feel like a big thing that you and I have spoken about, um, whether it's with friends who have done it or just in general, like when we talk about, you know, the Leah Williamson's of the world that this happens to, and now we're going to be missing big time tournaments is the training environment that they're in or the resources that they receive or, you know, what fields are they playing on? So, I mean, at the NCAA level, a lot of injuries will happen because like we play on turf just all the time. And then when you look at the professional level, like someone like Leah Williamson, she's putting in countless of minutes and is overall fatigued. I feel like I can make that assumption about her body is very fatigued going into that game against Manchester United. So I think things like the resources that women have are also important. And when you spoke to Rachel, because I'm sure obviously with just talking about women's sports in general, I'm sure something about the pay gap might've come up. Like, what are your thoughts on that, Abby? Like, is are these injuries happening to women at a record rate, not only because of the biology, not only because of the science, but also because, because of the pay gap, women don't have the proper resources to do the proper prehab, to do the proper rehab, to do proper prevention things to recover properly. Like, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Sid, I feel like with my opinions around football, I'm usually pretty definitive. And like, I feel confident in my thoughts and I have like facts to back it up. And with everything around ACLs, I just don't have like solid answers where I can get behind completely. And so like my real answer is I I don't know. I think... I think it's so multifaceted in terms of like, you can make the argument that, okay, women aren't playing on the best pitches, right? And like you said, maybe they tear them more on on turf than on grass. But then you have Leah Williamson who just tore her ACL on grass. And so like, there again, there isn't that one all be all reason that this is happening. I do think the pay gap plays a factor, but I, do, I can't definitively say like what aspects of that really do play a factor. Yeah, and I, and that's definitely fair to say, but I think it's important to note, like there is not gonna be one end all be all to fix or prevent ACL injuries from ever happening, right? So like, who knows, maybe if there was different research and there were better preventative measures or whatever the case may be, Leah still would have tore ACL, right? Like we, we just don't know that, like it might've just been her time or for that injury or something to happen. I just think it's more so like, there are gender-based biases that you cannot deny lead to 
certain aspects of the game. And I feel like who's to say that doesn't apply to injuries as well. There was a really good article um, that was done in Australia by Samantha Lewis for ABC Net. And she dove into some of these aspects. So it was something like the fact that boys at a young age are taught, you know, start lifting weights. Like you want to be, you want to be fit. You want to be bulky. Whereas girls don't do stuff like that until you reach a certain age. Like, I mean, a lot of our teammates in college, Abby didn't lift until they got to college and something like strength goes a really long way when dealing with knee injuries. So I just think like when you see stuff like that, maybe it's not the the pay gap per se that I feel like does play a role, but there are natural gender biases, whether it be in society or in the game itself, like that are very specific to the game that I feel like undeniably affect the aspects such as injuries. Yeah, so that, that totally makes sense to me. I think the next step really is to define what aspects of those gender biases are actually playing a leading cause in the proliferation of an ACL injury. Yeah, for sure. And abs, like you said, we don't have the answers, right? And we also don't have the experience, knock on wood. And so we wanted to bring somebody in who would be really honest about the experience, who did it not too long ago, um, but also gives us a different perspective because she's not American. And so Emma Robers will be joining us for the rest of this episode. And talking about ACL injuries, we thought it was really important to bring somebody in who has the perspective that Abby and I do not. So Emma is here. Emma Rovers is a midfielder for Western United and my teammate. She previously played for Melbourne Victory for three seasons and in the offseason has played for Calder United and Victoria, Australia. She has a bundle of joy and brings so much light into everyone's life. So Emma, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So we're just going to jump right in. Um, and if you can tell us a little background of your injury experience, um, you were at Victory when it happened, but just give us an understanding of what you went through. Yeah, so for me, it was in the off-season between A-League women's seasons. So um, I was playing in Queensland at the time. Um, it was COVID here, so I managed to escape Victoria and went to Queensland to be able to continue playing um, and for me, it was a tackle. Um, we both just went in really hard. I kind of bounced off her and landed really awkwardly and twisted my knee. Um, and to be honest, I knew straight away, like exactly what I'd done. Um, I think you've seen so many girls do it. And you've also like, I'd heard what it feels like when you do do it as in like, not to get too graphic, but there, there's, you have severe pain for about 30 seconds and then it kind of goes away and then you kind of think you're okay. But like, that's the kind of classic feeling that you have. And that's exactly what I had. Um, so yeah, I was pretty devastated at the time. I knew like I'd already, I'd just signed my contract with victory. Like I'd had an exciting first season and this was going to be my second season with them. And, you know, there was a lot of exciting promises at the time. Um, so I think timing was, you know, pretty, pretty sad and pretty devastating, um, but also did lead me to a rehab journey, which I'm sure we'll get into that um, ultimately made me a better, better person and a better player um, than I think I would have, wouldn't have been if I hadn't have done it. Yeah. I feel like it's really difficult. Like no matter what time you do it, 
because it's such a long rehab, there's never a quote unquote good time. And obviously you were in the middle of a game when it happened. I'm not sure if you remember like what minute it was or if you're ending the game, just beginning the game. But what's that like when you come off the field? And like you said, that 30 seconds of pain, but then it goes away. You think you're okay. Did you feel like, oh, I should go back on? Or did you know 100% like I've just done my knee, like get me to the hospital? Yeah, it's a good question. Like I knew at the time for me, it was about the 70th minute or something like that. And it was a game where, I had just been running like crazy. Like I think I'd already done about nine or 10 Ks within 70 minutes. So looking back, um, I thought, yeah, that was kind of interesting as well um, because it's definitely happens when you are more fatigued. Um, but yeah, as soon as I did it, I was like, oh, like this is not good. Like I just knew that something pretty horrible had happened. But then again, those 30 seconds are up and I'm kind of get up and I'm walking around and I'm like, it feels loose. Like it feels a bit weird, but I'm like, maybe this is all in my head. Like you do kind of start to question it. Um, I, I didn't try to go back on or anything. I said, not like it's not worth the risk, um, especially for, for a game just in the off season. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely a bit of a mind game as well in, in that moment. And so um, then can you tell us what it was like in the beginning? So you've done your knee, you don't go back into the game, you get a quick eval, I'm assuming. It's not a hard thing to diagnose. It's very common in our game, especially with women. So what is that journey like in the beginning of from the time when it happens to the time you get surgery to that initial bit of rehab? Yeah, so um, straight away my physio obviously had a look at it. Um, She was yeah, like didn't want to give me hope. Like she knew I'd done it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a pretty hard thing for a physio to directly say, like you've done your ACL. Like it's it's pretty upsetting to hear as a player, but also like it's hard to give that news as a physio. So she was trying to like kind of airbrush it a little bit and like give me that little bit of hope. Oh, you never know until you get a scan type thing. Um, but yeah, as I said before, like I definitely knew, um, but essentially straight away it was we needed to book me in for a scan. So um, I got one, I'm pretty sure it was just the next day, um, scanned that. And I remember I was sitting there in the MRI and I asked the the man who was conducting the, the scan afterwards and I was like, oh, how's it looking? And he was like, let me tell you, you are not going to be playing for a while. And I was like, I just burst into tears. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of savage and I was in that room all alone as well and I was just like, oh, my gosh, like I just burst into tears. I think it was the first time I, like, properly really cried um, about it. Um, so, yeah, that was that was pretty sad. And then obviously you do get the results pretty quickly as well. So the next day it was confirmed that I'd done my ACL. Um, so for me I was in Queensland, so it was a matter of I had to kind of quickly pack up my life um, and come back home to Melbourne um, in Victoria uh, for surgery. Um, so I was lucky enough that we had a family friend um, who like does knee reconstructions and stuff like that. So he could get me in like pretty much straight away. It was, you have to wait till the swelling goes down, but it was honestly maybe a, a week, max two weeks after I did it that I was in surgery. Um, so yeah, I, I got surgery um, and after that, it's a shock. Like the first two two weeks, like I just I just couldn't believe it. Like you you know, I feel like playing the sport. We all hear about girls who've done it, and like you know, it's a really bad injury. But I think you just don't understand the extent of it until you've actually gone through it. 
like you're sitting there, you can't move your knee, you can't bend it more than like 30 degrees. Like I was just like, I've never felt that sort of debilitation before in my life. Like I just, I couldn't, you have to learn to walk again and then run again and then like just bend your knee and do all these simple things that we take for granted. But like it was literally starting from scratch and I think that was something I wasn't really ready for. Um, But at the same time, look, I had huge support around me and my coach from Melbourne Victory, like he called me the day I did it. Um, I think he was watching the game actually that I was playing in Queensland and he was just, you know, so upset for me but promised um, the world and, and, you know, ensured that the club had helped me through it. So in that regard, I was very lucky. Um, But, yeah, there's a whole heap of emotions going on at the time. Yeah, I'm sure the contrast is is so stark from like being a professional athlete and, you know, doing the extreme amount of exercise you possibly can, and then you're kind of incapacitated. So yeah, that's just one part of the emotions, I'm sure. Um, One thing you mentioned was kind of this comment from your coach that, you know, the support will be around you in terms terms of your rehab. What did that rehab look like? Were you integrated into the club for that rehab? Or was it on your own? Was it with a PT? Like, what did that actually look like for you? Yeah, so um, straight away when I got back, all my rehab was done through the physios at Melbourne Victory. So um, we hadn't quite started pre-season yet. This was slightly before pre-season was about to start. Um, So I was just in with the physio pretty much every day. Um, You know, you have for the first it's six to eight weeks or something like that, you've got a certain amount of exercises that you have to do and you have to do them at least three times a day. Um, so I was doing that at this point, we're still in lockdown as well. Like Melbourne was, was really bad here (laughs) with COVID. So, um, I couldn't get access to a proper gym and I could only go see my physio, you know, a couple times a week. So like, even that was, was making me really anxious in terms of, I had to find like body weight exercise ways to like do these same, um, exercises that they wanted me to do. Um, but I guess on the flip side of that as well, COVID also allowed me to like solely focus on this. Like I didn't have any other outside distractions. My sole focus was my rehab. Um, but yeah, the, so, um, in terms of with the club, um, then preseason started, maybe I think I was like eight weeks in. Um, so I would go to training every morning. Like I just, I wanted to get out of the house and I also wanted to be around the girls and the team. So I still went to training every morning, Um, I'd start the morning with them and then I'd go into the gym when they went on the field. Emma, right there, you just mentioned kind of your teammates and and being around them. Obviously there was COVID, so we were isolated in that sense. But can you talk a little bit more about the isolation or lack of isolation that you felt during this rehab period? Obviously you're not on the field in the drills with the girls, but were you integrated in other ways or how did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky. Um, Obviously, before you even go on the field, like the girls are always together. So, um, you know, we're checking every morning, of course, and the girls are checking on me and see how I'm going. And like they'd celebrate my little wins with me as well. Um, And then I guess the the best part was when I was able to start going on the field. So um, you start running, obviously it varies per person, but I started running um, at 12 or 11 weeks. I was a little bit early. Um, and you know, like when you do your first run, it's the classic, everyone's cheering you on and like, they're so excited for you. So, 
I mean, that was a massive part of it. I think like if I didn't have that and I didn't have that support and encouragement from from my teammates who are also like my second family, um, I think I really would have struggled, to be honest. Um, but, you know, they've all got your back and they're urging you on and and I think that makes you push that little bit harder um, to get back and back playing with them. Obviously, um, it's a really long recovery. And like you said, there are different stages of emotion as you're going through it. And when you get to the point where you can be back on the field and you have a little bit of relief being around your teammates, I'm sure there's also a lot of FOMO because now you're actually seeing the practice every single day. You want to be a part of it. Eventually you get to that point, you're running, you're probably in as a, as a joker, as a bouncer, um, you know, non-contact. So what was it like when you started to come back? How does that feel physically? How does it feel emotionally when you're on the cusp at the end of your recovery, but you're still not a hundred percent? I think that is the hardest part. Um, I mean, at the start, it obviously was a shock not being able to do a lot, but you progress very quickly in the first three, three to three to four months. You're progressing really quickly. Like, you know, after three months, I'm running. And then a few weeks later, I'm starting to do a bit of change of direction and things like that. But once you hit, um, yeah, five, six months, it, it not that you stagnate, but it's like there's not these huge jumps. And I think that was really hard. Um, you know, I was kicking a ball and and moving and changing direction and all of that around five, six months, but then I still had to wait another six months before I could actually, um, you know, play a professional game, which, which is hard. Like I know I think it might be different in the U.S., but here we have to take the 12 months. It's kind of mandatory. So um, that second six months was just painful almost. Like I – especially by the time it got to nine months, I was like, I'm so ready. Like I'm full training, like I'm ready. I just want to play, um, you know, and, and again, you have to sit on the sidelines and you can't travel with the girls and you're always watching and it it's frustrating and it's hard to deal with. Um, and I think the hardest part is it kind of builds this suspense to you coming back as well and then I don't know I almost felt more pressure of like okay it's been so long and I've been in this phase for so long like I need to actually perform um which was another element of it as well which maybe was all in my head but um yeah I mean there's so many layers physically and emotionally to all of it yeah, I think to the point that you say about Australia being a bit different from a place like the US, ABS, I don't know if you actually know this, but they're really big here about it being a full year recovery. So even if you're ready to go at nine months, I had a teammate back in the US when she did her first one for the first time, she came back seven months in. Like, and that's very starkly different to 12 months. Do you feel like, Emma, because you mentioned fatigue in the beginning and ABS, I mean, your perspective is also very helpful here, I think, because we are from the US. So that's not very common to us. Do you think that that helps prevent doing it again? Because obviously it's a very common trend that an athlete will do one and then will do the other. So do you think that that rule, Emma, makes a difference? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, I really do. Um, I, being a bit of a science nerd myself, I studied science at uni, but I read a lot of papers and stuff around it as well. Um, and there is a lot of data to back up that the the more or like every week extra that you take over nine months gives you an extra, I think it was 12% or something that you're less likely to do it again. So like those, those weeks after the nine months are actually really critical and can like 
almost ensure, not ensure, but give you a really, really good chance to not do it again. Um, so, I mean, that is what I kept in the back of my mind. I just kept saying, look, I feel great now. Another three months of doing this at least is is going to ensure that I give myself the best possible chance to come back well but also not do it again. So as hard as it is, um, I I personally think at least from what I've read, and obviously I haven't read all of it, I don't know, maybe there's more data coming out now as well, um, but, but I do think it gives you a better shot um, of not doing it again. I find that so interesting, Emma, that you talk about the difference of timeline between Australia and the States. And I also know it's the same in France. Um, you know, we're similar to, to the States in that, you know, whenever you're ready or whenever the PT clears you, that's when you come back. And so having a mandatory 12 months is vastly different. And obviously you're, you're following the science, you're following the data. But I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is not only is there a minuscule amount of data being pumped out or amount of research being pumped out, but it varies quite often. Um, and so I'm curious to get your perspective of how do we navigate this space when people are saying different things, countries are doing different things. Like, is there a, I mean, I don't want to say, is there a one-all that we do altogether or something that we follow altogether? But I guess from someone that's done it, do you have a perspective on where we should take the science or how we, how we should progress from here? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think kind of what you're alluding to as well is there is no right or wrong. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that, you know, in the US or, or France, it might be nine months, um, you know, might be representative of their rehab protocols and perhaps they are more fast paced and intense than they are here. Um, so their nine months is, you know, similar to our 12 months and things like that. Um, and you're also right in saying that the data out there is so minimal, um, which to me is mind blowing because especially with female athletes, it is such a common injury um, and and a nasty one at that, you know, players are out for a really long time from something like this and, and essentially it's like starting from scratch. Um, so I think that honestly is the first step um, in that we need – we need more data. We need more research um, to be taken on to not only why this injury happens, but the best way or best ways that we can prevent this from happening um, and perhaps even make the the comeback um, faster. Um, I know that there's there's different types of surgeries out there as well, which obviously um, some you recover faster from than others and things like that. Um, but I think this is a space which, like, just really needs to be taken and, and someone needs to really look into it um, because especially now as well, we've seen so many girls from Beth Mead and possibly Leah Williamson as well and all these huge players are now going to miss out on a, on a World Cup because of this same injury. Like it hasn't gone away and it's been here for years um, and it, it's heartbreaking, honestly. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the reasons why we wanted to get your perspective, Emma, because unfortunately this is – a very serious reality that footballers face. And it's something that disproportionately affects female fo footballers more. And so it's really unfortunate that it's something that we have to go through, but the question always remains like, is there something that could be done to prevent it from happening to 10 more percent of people or whatever the case may be. So it's not something that I think we would be naive to say, Oh, we can, there's a way to eradicate it from happening. Obviously not. But I think if even just one thing can be done or if there's a way to standardize something across multiple leagues, 
um, maybe that can help. And maybe that's prevention. Maybe that's, that's prehab and, and things like that and implementing more serious education to understanding, you know, these are the exercises that you guys are going to do and here's why. And I even think something like that could go a really long way. I totally agree. And I think um, you hit the nail on the head and that the, the best thing and the most important thing that players can do is prehab to help prevent an ACL injury. Um, you know, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it, it definitely helps. Um, and, and, you know, even myself growing up, like I, I never did that in a community, in the community space. Like I would never do prehab. It wasn't until I got into professional sport where I really learned about the benefits of it and the importance of it and things like that. Um, so I think if there's one thing that, that all female athletes and male athletes that that should be doing is, is doing prehab exercises, which honestly will take two minutes if, you know, at a minimum, um, before you jump out on that field could just be, you know, the ACL saving exercise, um, for someone. And Emma, obviously you mentioned the amount of this injury has increased, I think, as the, the game has grown. Is there anything that you would advise for someone that's going through this process currently or maybe has in the past? What advice would you give them um, going forward? The biggest piece of advice, um, apart from the obvious in, in being diligent with your rehab, is just to celebrate the wins, um, no matter how small. Um, that was something that I definitely did. Um, you know, the first time I bent my knee 90 degrees, like my sister was taking me out for ice cream or like <laughs> when I was running, the girls are clapping, like things like that. It's just those celebrating all those little wins are, are so important. Um, and you know, they keep you motivated. Um, and I also just want to say like, although this injury is, is severe and it's scary, um, and everything like that, it's, there's nothing that's stopping you from coming back to be stronger and better than you were before. And that's definitely the way that I've, that I've felt, you know, I, I came back a much better player than I was before. Um, and, you know, it, it really, it is devastating, but it doesn't need to be the be all and end all. That was the most Emma response ever, just oozing with positivity. <laughs> You got to. <laughs> and it's true as well. Like, I'm not lying. <laughs> you can't help yourself. Well, Emma, thank you so much for bringing your perspective and, and speaking to us. I feel like, honestly, abs, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we learned a lot from this conversation as well. So much, so much. Yeah. So Emma, thank you so much. It was so great talking to you. And like I said, having this perspective, it really goes a long way. So thank you so much, Emma Robers. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That was great insight from Emma. We can't thank her enough for coming on and giving us that perspective. I mean, even just listening to her talk about certain aspects that you don't really know unless you've lived it, I think is really vital. So can't thank her enough. Emma, love you for coming on. Love you anyway. Really great to have that perspective. We are going to move on to hot takes right now, and we're going to do something a little bit different. If we're being honest, Abby and I are running out of hot takes. We have a lot of opinions about football, but... Hot takes is a completely different level of opinion. Yeah, it's also difficult because I feel like a lot of our hot takes come naturally. 
like when we are just discussing, we just disagree about literally everything. And so sometimes it's hard to think about like, oh, what do Abby and I disagree about? And then bring it up in the podcast. So we're switching things up a little bit and we're just going to do one at a time. So we're just going to alternate between whose hot take it is each episode. So I have the honor of kicking things off because unlike my fellow host, I was able to come up with something. And (laughs) I think it's a, maybe a hot take in the soccer world but if you know me at all not a hot take with what I think personally (laughs) okay hot take you should have to rate referees after each game through a point system to evaluate their game like their refereeing to determine their salary or like their job security maybe not salary but like their job security oh my gosh Sydney (laughs) I'm sorry, Abby. It just needs to be said. It needs to be said and it needs to be talked about. Okay. Well, we're going to disagree on this because first of all, I was a referee for like five years. And so I sympathize with them in some aspects, but bro, rating a referee is so subjective, especially when you have like lost a game, it is completely subjective and you cannot like 50% of the time or 50% of the people after a game are going to hate the referee. Fair. Okay. Your point is fair. And I feel like you're thinking that I'm one of those people that is falling into this category. And I just want to defend myself to say my issue with refs is not when they make calls against me or against my team. My issue with refs most of the time is about consistency. Like if you're going to make bad calls, make bad calls for both teams. If you're going to make good calls, make good calls for both teams. That's mostly where my issue lies. So, okay, let's just say in this argument, it's not players or, or like, you know, staff that does the rating. What if there's like an objective party that comes in and like evaluates the ref? I think that they do have some sort of like ref evaluation. Then why do these refs suck? Because there isn't enough. The the crux of the problem is that there isn't enough funding in the women's game to like support teaching referees how to be good. Mm, So what you're saying is my hot take, my issue needs to be with the man, not with the little people. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I feel like your issue is more with just like the standards of referees in the women's game more so than like your hot take of let's make a rigorous grading system where the players I mean, off the worst one. You're putting, you're putting words in my mouth. Like this isn't survivor. Okay. Well, I think, I think this was a great hot take to illuminate an issue in the women's game, but I fundamentally disagree with your original hot take. Okay, that's fine. I agree with my fundament, my my initial hot take. So, fabulous! So, Sid and I both have our championship matches this coming weekend. Super excited for that. But if you have some extra time on your hands and you want a little bit more football, we have a new docuseries, Six Park, coming out for the Matildas, the Australian national team. It's going to be streamed on Disney+. Plus. So, take a look at that. It's going to be super interesting to get a deeper dive into the hosts. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to email us at meggedpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at meggedpodcast. We hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Please rate us and leave reviews on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Join us next week as we tackle new topics, fight over our different perspectives, and as always, our hot takes. See you next week on Megged.